everyone out there, and also we've got a couple of students in person with us here. Um, we want to welcome you both, everybody, to the fall um, 2020 GES Colloquium Series. Um, this is Don Rodriguez Ward. Um, I'm Todd Kukin. We're sort of managing this chaos this semester. Um, we realize it's sort of an unideal and different situation that we're all in, both here at NC State and also abroad. Um, so we appreciate you sort of um, learning with us as we develop um, how we do these colloquiums, both in person um, and virtually. Wanna say anything to you? Well, just, uh, just thank everyone for showing up. And, um, and I just wanted to remind everyone that unfortunately at the Poe Room, we're only allowed to have the uh, students that are registered for this course because of space. So um, the only, only ones that would be able to come into this classroom are the students and everyone else would have to remain virtual in order for us to maintain our seating capacity. Okay, so we're gonna get started. Um, I'm really excited to introduce um, Natalie Koffler and Alex Perlman. Um, I'm privileged enough to know them and to be able to call them friends. Um, and they're gonna talk to us today about um, COVID-19 immunity passports and DIY vaccines, um, which may seem like separate issues, but um, hopefully they're going to be able to show us what some of the sort of crossover issues are um, from both an ethics standpoint and an equity standpoint. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves um, in depth for you so I don't take up any more of their time for this great discussion. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Natalie first, um, I think, or do I have that wrong? Or are we going to go with Alex first? I uh, no, I thought I was going first, so I'm That's ready. That's what I thought, too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I will turn it over to Natalie. Yeah. They kind of give a brief introduction of their topics, um, and then I may come in to sort of with a generalized question, and they're going to kind of have a, a debate or discussion amongst themselves for the next 30 minutes or so, um, and then we'll open it up to a broader discussion with everyone else. So, Natalie, uh, take it away. Um. Uh, Todd, thank you again for inviting me. It's um, it's really great to be well, great to be back, um, at least virtually. Um, I've had the pleasure of presenting um, to your colloquium once before, and just really enjoyed the conversation. And um, I'm excited to kind of be able to do a redo on a pretty a pretty different topic, actually, than what I've normally discussed. Um, just some background on me. Um, so I well, so you know where I am right now. I'm actually about. Uh, 30 minutes outside Toronto. So I'm up in Canada where I'm from originally. I kind of ran north when things uh, started changing. Um, feeling quite grateful for uh, what's happening up here. Um, and um, I, I'm a molecular biologist by training, um, but really now exclusively work in sort of the ethics and policy and regulation space of, of emerging technologies and particularly genetic technologies. Um, I started an organization called Editing Nature and we really look at um, sort of how to steer inclusive and responsible decision-making around genetic engineering in, in the wild, for wild species. Um, and I'm also just joined um, an initiative at Harvard called the Scientific Citizenship, Citizenship Initiative, which I invite you all to check out. It's really cool. Um, it's, it's housed at the medical school and um, I'm going to help build them, help them to build a program that really thinks about how to shift um, the culture of science um, and thinking about how we train students as well as how we uh, create incentive structures um, to really promote science um, in a way that it, it really aligns with society and, and is informed by sort of a more diverse and inclusive worldview. Um, 
So that's some of the stuff I'm working on right now. And um, in the pandemic, obviously, as I'm sure with many of you, um, focuses kind of shifted or there were things that came um, came across that you came across that you might have jumped onto that I never really thought I would would be thinking about. Um, and one of those were these these ideas of uh, COVID-19 immunity passports. Um, and so what I just kind of wanted to say do in my short time of chatting is sort of get everyone on the same page of what these proposals are and some of the sort of um, scientific and practical limitations of any, of any such policies, um, but really probably spend a bit more time just talking about some of the ethical um, equity issues um, around uh, an immunity passport for, for COVID-19. And so the premise of a COVID-19 immunity passport program is um, basically to have some sort of certification for people that can show that they have um, gotten infected with COVID-19, they've recovered, and they would therefore have likely have circulating antibodies um, that through serological testing um, that could be validated. Um, and the idea would be that there'd be sort of these government mandated um, passports that people would receive um, to be able to show that they have they likely have immunity. Um, to COVID-19, and this would allow people perhaps to be able to return to work, um, depending on their jobs. It could allow people to travel, um, and it could also allow people to even to attend certain social gatherings. So, for example, there's been discussions of using COVID-19 immunity passports in the UK to be able to attend certain soccer matches. Um, there's been discussions in Miami with certain hotel chains thinking about how COVID-19 immunity passports could be used to allow certain guests to come stay at these hotels. Um, London Heathrow Airport's been discussing using immunity passports to allow for people to, to resume air travel. Um, and then there's also major uh, governments that have been thinking about these on a national scale. So, um, for example, the first country to kind of um, endorse such an idea would be Chile. They looked at using what they slowly rolled back from the term immunity passport, instead looked at, um, decided to call them um, Oh gosh, I'm totally blanking on the word, but something like a COVID-19 um, recovery certificate or something like that. Oh, sorry. My cat has a cold and she's making noises. So that's not me. That's the cat. <laughs> sorry. I'm picking up medicine this afternoon um, for her. So if you hear that, I apologize. Um, so um, where was I? Um, and so then there's also major company uh, countries like Germany has been exploring this as an idea. Um, different uh, Slovenia has also been, or sorry, Estonia has also been thinking about this, um, and other governments as well. And so um, it's it's a it's a, something that's out there, and, and it was something that I was really concerned about, um, both as a scientist and as an ethicist when I first heard about these, and just as a human really that cares about social justice um, when I heard about this proposal. Um, and so just quickly, some of the scientific issues with, with, such a, with such a policy is that, of course, as many of you likely know in this room, we just don't really know how COVID-19 immunity works yet, right? Um, we don't know how long it lasts for. We don't know if everybody mounts an immune response that would protect them from future reinfection. Uh, we don't know um, if everybody develops antibodies that could be measure measured to say, see whether they'd be immune or not. So there's also T-cell responses that might be um, modulating immunity. Um, that wouldn't necessarily be picked up on a serological blood test. Um, and and I, I think I said this already, but we don't know how long it would last, right? So if you're going to give someone an immunity passport, how long do you get to have that immunity for, you know? So um, if it lasts like something like a coronavirus that causes cold, then the cold, then that could literally be as little as, you know, four to six months. If it lasts more, something like SARS, um, it could maybe be two years. But again, it hasn't been around long enough for us to really know this. 
So scientifically, there's like a major concern there. And there were also major concerns around testing efficiency and efficacy. There were a lot of tests um, for antibodies that were on the uh, market and had been approved that still had pretty low specificity and sensitivity. So this is a concern if you have false negatives or false positives, right? So a false, posit a false positive would be concerning in an immunity passport program because you'd have people that think they are immune and testing as if they're immune uh, when they're not. And so that's a major public health concern. Um, there are also practical issues, right? So even um, when you think about the prevalence of, of COVID-19 in a population, um, of course, these numbers are going up and they're going up significantly in the United States, but in a place like where I am now in Canada or even in Germany, it looks like the prevalence is really around, you know, five to 10% in, in most places. So from a practical standpoint, like, does that really help much for an economic perspective if you're only getting five to 10% of a population back, back to work? Um, and then of course, testing capacity is a concern to do as well. How do you ensure you have enough tests to really roll out a nationwide program like immunity passports? Um, but for me, really, where the big um, concern lay, concerns laid and really made me incredibly wary was um, some more of these issues around um, the ethics of, some, of such a program. And, and in part because a lot of the ethical concerns revolved around issues of, um, of discrimination and, and inequity, um, which as for someone like me who really looks at ethics through a pretty strong justice lens, um, it, was, it was really a no-go. Um, and I want to just like kind of give you an idea of how something like this could play out so you can kind of understand where, where my concerns are, are lying. Um, so first off, if you think about this, right, an immunity passport program is basically a new biological measure by which to divide, um, divide society, right? So it's going to begin creating a new sort of category of have and have nots, right? Um, some of the wording we've used is sort of the immunoprivileged or the immunodeprived. Right. And so the immunoprivileged are going to be those that are going to be able to access certain things that those without a passport um, are, are not going to be able to. And what's what needs to be clearly um, explained here is that this is very different than if there was a universally available effective vaccine. Right. That we know that it works, that we know how long it works for, that there were enough doses that everybody could have access and perhaps opt out. But at least everyone has the option to have have this right. An immunity passport based on um, someone's capability of recovering from COVID-19 um, requires someone firstly is lucky enough to and privileged enough to recover, right? And get the healthcare they need to, to recover from this disease. It means they have to be privileged enough to be able to access testing to prove that they've recovered and they have antibodies. And they have to be rich enough to have likely a smartphone because many of these are just are likely gonna be on digital um, platforms to show that they have immunity or not or pay for registration fees to also get this passport, right? So this is a very different scenario than a universally ac accessible uh, vaccination. Um, and so this was something very concerning for us. Um, and when I say us, a lot of this work I've done, I should have said this from the beginning, a lot of this work I've done on this topic has been with Francois Bayless, who is um, a bioethicist out of Dalhousie University, whom I've learned immensely from um, actually through this process. Um, and then, and so there's issues too around um, basically what we could see happening, um, particularly playing out in societies um, like our own that are already uh, premised and, and built on systems of structural racism, that this sort of program would, would very much play into that same um, system and actually exasperate some of the discrimination and racial inequity um, that we see already in society. And this is where it was very concerning uh, for us. So for example, 
as I mentioned, many of these uh, passport programs would be digital, so they'd be on people's smartphones. Um, there's surveillance concerns, obviously, like, obviously with that, and privacy concerns um, whenever your biological data is on a smartphone. Um, and this is something that would, you know, broadly impact everybody. However, there's a concern that this could more broadly impact communities of color, um, where we know already that there's higher prevalence of COVID-19 in certain communities of color in the United States, particularly African-American communities in entire neighborhoods. Um, and so you could have much higher uh, percentages of people with COVID-19 immunity passports in those neighborhoods, allowing for monitoring and surveillance of entire communities uh, to an entire different level. And when we say that, if it's on a smartphone, they can know who you're coming close to or interacting with. They could be under, able to understand some of your spending habits. Um, they could be able to understand, um, you know, even like uh, uh, democratic engagement and protest. Um, and so this was something that was, was quite concerning as well. Um, of course, another concern is if you have another um, avenue by which authorities are able to stop you and ask for validation of your immunity before you enter into a certain area, for example. Um, this is a huge concern that comes up with racial profiling. So we know that black and uh, brown people are going to, it is you know, unequivocal that they would not be, be stopped and, and searched more readily, um, innocent law-abiding people um, than those who are white. Um, and then the third thing that I, I wanted to kind of talk about too, um, before I get into sort of the, how this plays into inequity, is also the capability of an immunity passport program almost serving as a proxy for discrimination, right? So say you have a situation that the US government decides that they would like to instill a policy that um, mandates that people have to show proof of immunity um, before entering into the United States. Um, or say you're only from certain countries and would have to show proof of immunity before entering into this certain into this into the country. And so you could have a scenario, for example, where the government would mandate that anyone visiting from China would have to show proof of immunity, but perhaps anyone visiting from Sweden wouldn't. And so you could have situations where this could be used as a way to actually prevent uh, travel and immigration by certain countries. Uh, National nationals, um, and this isn't coming out of thin air. We've already seen this happen um, historically, where um, governments had used uh, HIV testing as a proxy to sort of prevent the travels of certain groups of people, particularly those with, um, particularly governments that have really uh, restricted LGBTQ uh, laws, and 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 so this is something that was also a concern for us. Um, so before I finish, I want to just say, so one of the, one of the, and this hopefully will stop this question because you might already have it. One of the things that um, gets posed to me quite often um, is, well, if in the U.S., for example, uh, Black Americans are, you know, have much higher percent uh, proportion or likelihood of getting COVID-19, then wouldn't a COVID-19 immunity passport benefit those communities? Right? Wouldn't those people in those communities actually have a higher likelihood of being able to access some of the liberties that an immunity passport would, would provide? Um, for many of the reasons I've already said, um, that's, I just don't, I, I, would hope, I would hope that we lived in a society that somehow the structural inequities that cause that disproportionate health disparity um, so could somehow miraculously you know, disappear and that immunity passport wouldn't play within those inequities. Of course, that's not gonna happen. Um, and so what we could actually envision seeing is a increase in inequality across racial lines, um, where, for example, um, if, you know, a 
person that has an immunity passport is going to be more desired by an employer to work in front facing jobs, right? So there might may be preferred to be, you know, working as the grocery clerk as opposed to the manager of the grocery store, right? You could actually have a situation that those that are already in low income front facing uh employment could actually get stuck in those positions and not be able to migrate up through higher positions of, of, um, of, of work class, right? And so this is just actually one other way that already there's biological divisions of liberties um, but that immunity passport would instill, but you could see long-term impacts that you could actually lock into lock people into low, low income salary positions um, that could have uh, very long-term impacts alongside with issues around surveillance. And, 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 and to me, um, just to finish, if we're looking at this, at this very, um, large and in many ways traumatic world event that we're facing with this COVID-19 pandemic. And if we look at it as this opportunity because it's unearthed and unveiled, um, many things that we were already aware of, but really shown um, how how, um, dangerous inequality is uh, to the success of a nation. This to me is one policy that would just completely revert um, historically to something that could, could create more inequality as opposed to really thinking about and envisioning a future um, where more people are able to be healthy and to thrive and find ways that we can reopen economies in safe, in safe ways that work for everyone. And I, I know this is a very contentious issue, particularly in the United States, but things that we know work um, wearing a mask, washing your hands. Um, these are things we know work and that anyone can engage in as long as they don't have health concerns that would prevent mask wearing. Let's put our money behind things that we know are important and that can uplift everyone and not um, policies that could actually serve to, to further disenfranchise large segments of our population. Um, so that's sort of, in a nutshell, all the things I've been thinking about. As you can tell, I've been thinking about meaning passports a lot. I'm kind of like ready to think about some other topics, um, but it is really important. Um, and I'm really, um, I'm going to hand the baton over to Alex, but I'm really excited, um, well, firstly, to learn from her. And um, and I think I can allow her to also maybe at the end of her talk kind of set us up about how these two interplay. Because um, we kind of came up with these like, whoa, aha moments when we were thinking about some strange things that could play out um, with the DIY vaccines and, and immunity passports. So um, thanks for hearing me and I'll, I'll pass it over to Alex. Thanks, Natalie. Um, that was great. And I'm so glad because like you say, like you've been so focused on immunity passports and you want to focus on something else. I've been so focused on like DIY bio. I'm like, oh, cool. Some other topic to learn about. This is awesome. Um, so thanks so much. And, and, um, I'm really glad that we can, um, sort of merge these topics together. Um, and thank you to Todd, especially for having me and giving us the opportunity to sort of connect these um, sort of seemingly divergent issues into um, one big talk to show how actually nothing exists in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about <laughs> genetics technologies and especially um, bioethics and policy concerns about emerging technologies, things are all the all interconnected together. So um, I'll just start off with a short introduction. I'm Alex Perlman. Um, I'm a journalist by training and I am still regularly reporting on emerging technologies. Um, I'm mostly focused on genetic technologies as well as um, the DIY bio slash biohacker slash community bio spaces. Um, in addition to being an editor at Biodesign Magazine, which you should all go check out because I think that anyone here 
um, who's interested in this would definitely be interested in reading what we have over there. It's um, biodesign.org. Um, I'm also um, working on a project at University of Pennsylvania with um, some colleagues uh, looking at um, how the DIY bio community is actually uh, engaging with COVID in various ways globally. Um, we're looking specifically at a platform called Joggle, Just One Giant Lab, where members of the DIY bio community can um, meet and connect and validate and research together. Um, and that presents a lot of really challenging issues as well. So um, I'm really excited about that project. And I'm also a research affiliate with the Community Bio uh, Initiative at the MIT Media Lab. and um, really excited about some of the work that's going on there. Um, but this talk is going to be about DIY vaccines, which is a um, pretty new, <laughs> um, pretty new issue in the world. Obviously, there hasn't been a huge need for people to produce their own vaccines um, before March. So this is extremely new, just like the concerns that Natalie was um, thinking about around immunity passports. Um, the DIY uh, biospace has been, you know, working on various projects, but this is something that's really new. And, and as someone who comes um, from a space where I like to look at the bioethics and health policy implications of what these people and groups are working on and doing and how that might impact not only the scientific enterprise, but sort of our society and how we engage with health technologies. Um, this is a really interesting one for me. So I did do a couple slides um, just to give some background. So I can share that. I think Todd, you gave me sharing permission. So, all right, let me just, um, oops. All right. Okay, I hope everyone can see. Um, if you can't, someone say something. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, so a little bit of background on the DIY vaccine situation as it stands today. So as far as I know, um, there are at least three groups who have been working on DIY vaccines. Um, so one of those is the group that was covered in Antonio Regalado's recent piece for the MIT Technology Review, which I think went out as sort of a pre-reading for this session. So, but if you don't, if you didn't get a chance to read it, um, that's about a group called RADVAC, which um, is made up of a number of um, scientists and researchers, as well as lay, lay citizens um, who call themselves citizen scientists. Um, who have um, developed a nasal vaccine. So the second group um, is led by uh, Josiah Zayner and David Ishii, and also includes a third person, uh, Daria Denseva, who is a biohacker from um, Ukraine. I believe, yes, Ukraine, sorry. Um, <laughs> and yesterday they all injected themselves with a DNA vaccine. Um, live on YouTube. I watched. It was really interesting. Um, if anyone else wants to watch, uh, it's on Josiah Zayner's YouTube channel. The third group um, that we know of for sure is another group of biohackers who um, include uh, three people who have uh, participated in 
genetic technologies and gene therapy experiments before on themselves and are really interested in this kinds of self-experimentation. Um, and then the fourth group is sort of up in the air and I haven't been able to track down whether or not they have continued with their work, but in the early days of the pandemic in March, they were covered a little bit in the media as being funded by Bitcoin and looking for Bitcoin donations so that they could um, create a vaccine. So no word on whether that was successful, but I'm including it here just because who knows if they're um, actually working on that. So all of those groups included, I think we can safely estimate that at least 40 people have been vaccinated. RADVAC says that they know that at least 20 people and they've given their vaccine um, and helped other source materials up to upwards of potentially 70 people for that um, one group. Uh, so I think we can safely say that 40 is a, is a safe number when we talk about how many people have actually been vaccinated. Um, but we don't know if it works, right? We have no idea. There hasn't been a lot of testing and the, I don't believe that any of the um, groups have, produ have produced antibodies that, that have been reported back. So whether they have, maybe they haven't reported that to the media or <laughs> other biohackers and they're keeping that private, um, we don't know. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the motivations of DIY vaccines, as well as um, sort of biohacking and community bio um, largely, because I think the motivations behind these vaccines fits in with the narrative that DIY bio has um, been sort of continuously uh, insistent on over the past 10 or so years. So the first part of that is that traditional establishment research can be quite bulky, can be slow. Um, and especially when it comes to health technologies, we can even see how the US government is a great example of how bulky and, and uh, difficult it is to get anything through a pipeline. And even with emergency use authorizations, a lot of um, the tests and diagnostics don't work. As Natalie mentioned, a lot of the antibody tests are turning out to not work as well as we had hoped. Um, and we don't really know as much as we want to about the virus. And so as new information comes out, it's difficult for any manufacturing of vaccines to just turn on a dime and be agile and, and um, add new information and use new information in a vaccine pathway. Biohackers insist that because they do things um, on a much smaller scale and don't have to scale up their manufacturing. Not only are they, um, their projects cost far less money, but also they're way more agile and they're able to um, sort of pivot very quickly and not worry, not need to worry about um, manufacturing pathways and wasting hundreds of millions of dollars like traditional pharma. Um, so the second one I think Natalie touched on really well is questions of access and distributive justice. So the community bio movement, um, which is sort of an offshoot of biohacking and DIY bio, is very focused on social justice and particularly around health technologies and access to knowledge and technology. Um, there is a concern that uh, if there is a vaccine that you know it might be only accessible to a select few and 
biohackers themselves are worried that they they need to produce their own medicine. And this is something that biohackers have traditionally been concerned with. A great example is the Open Insulin Project, where insulin is something that should be readily available for everyone. Uh, it isn't. It's very expensive for many people. And uh, often, you know, if you don't have health insurance, you can't access insulin. A biohacker project called the Open Insulin Project is attempting to manufacture insulin at home on a small scale. So this is something that we've seen before with biohackers. They're very concerned with questions of access. And then finally, um, a couple of these groups have said that they're not interested in producing mass amounts of vaccines and are really just interested in um, experimenting with this new virus and are interested in um, education and open science as a motivation. A big tenant of biohacking is sort of liberating knowledge, liberating um, science from the ivory towers and bringing it to the people. And, and it's based a lot on the idea that anyone can learn how to do science and anyone can learn how to experiment with emerging technologies. So I think that these DIY vaccine projects and at least one of them, specifically Josiah Zaner's, um, they have said repeatedly that this is just an experiment and they're not attempting to um, create uh, vaccines for the masses. Whether or not that can change, uh, you know, if it turns out that there's works, <laughs> I think it's, that's a wait and see situation. Um, I also wanted to call attention for, uh, to the DIY vaccines that we've been talking about, how they're not all the same. And it's a great example of how it's difficult to paint the entire DIY bio or biohacker communities with the same brush. Um, not only are they all different kinds of vaccines, uh, but also the groups themselves have operated very differently. Some have sought media attention and have called out, um, you know, have called reporters, have sought attention, have gone on YouTube and done injections live on the internet, and others have been really quiet. Like I said, there was one group that we haven't really heard from at all. Um, except that they have been discussing on biohacker message boards and other places where um, the community gathers, such as Jawel. Um, I also wanted to specifically note that the, um, the ways that DIY vaccine producers identify themselves is very different. Um, certainly one group uses the term biohacker, while another group very... Um, very specifically and cautiously call themselves citizen scientists. So I think, you know, there's still a lot of push and pull and tension around what different terms mean, um, how people perceive them, and certainly biohacker, you know, the word hacker can have a negative connotation, but it can also, um, you know, it sounds cool, it sounds dangerous, whereas citizen scientist sounds a little bit more low-key, <laughs> for sure. And that's something that, um, you know, groups are very aware of when they um, label themselves in the media. So just wanted to call attention to that. Um, and then, so I'll just outline some of these basic concerns that I think, you know, Natalie also did a similar sort of outline about um, immunity passports, and maybe this is a good place to sort of tie these things together. So. Um, like any emerging technologies, there's sort of an LC um, list of concerns. So, of course, <laughs> legal concerns with DIY vaccines are pretty uh, far uh, reaching. 
Um, they're very expansive and we sort of made a list when we talked about this before, but, um, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, precedent for this. So while self-experimentation is legal, if the DIY vaccines start to cross state lines or these groups start to sell them, certainly that's a place for the FDA to step in. Um, but before that, it's not clear whether what these groups are doing is actually illegal and it sort of exists in a bizarre gray space um, of sort of regulatory morass, like a lot of what biohackers do. Um, Another major concern is um, that at least one of these groups ha is collaborating with um, a member overseas. So like I mentioned, uh, there's one biohacker who is based in Ukraine and I'm unsure about what the uh, legal ramifications would be for her um, in her country if she you know, is, is ordering um, materials from the US. I'm not really sure what the situation is, but certainly we can guess that there are some some legal uh, or potential legal hurdles that might exist. Um, another interesting issue around a lot of different DIY products is ownership. When there are multiple people collaborating on a open source product that is also um, that they also uh, put out for for use in the public sphere. A lot of these recipes are just being posted online. It's, it's interesting to see what might happen in an open IP universe where traditionally we're very used to something like a vaccine being the property of a pharmaceutical company. But if a biohacker vaccine actually works or takes off, who owns it? You know, who, who registers it? Where does the money go? These are, these are interesting IP questions. Um, a lot of the ethical questions that exist in this project also exist in other biohacker projects. Um, the major one is, like I said, for the biohackers, their major concern is access and scale. So they're, they're worried that any other vaccine might not be accessible for a long time. They're worried that, um, like Natalie was pointing to, uh, folks who maybe don't have access to vaccines, if it comes on the market privately, if a larger group produces a vaccine that then you can pay for, maybe the rich and famous are able to get immunity passports. Maybe a vaccine produces antibodies that then they can, you know, register with their government and go start taking plane travel and going to sporting events and um, creating a haves and have nots. I really liked that word that you used, immunoprivileged. I really liked that. And so the idea of a biohacker vaccine would be that you can make it at home. Uh, you don't have to be an immunoprivileged person to produce it. You can get it for yourself. That's, that's one of their major concerns. That said, <laughs> of course, there are a lot of other concerns, including consent and risk assessment with a DIY vaccine. We still don't know. Uh, how these vaccines work. We don't know if they work. We don't know if they produce a immune response and antibodies, but then um, prove to not actually make a person immune. Um, so of course, if folks are going around touting that these are actually functional vaccines and do create antibodies and are working, but indeed they don't, um, just like Natalie pointed to, 
this could create a massive safety and ethical issue um, just largely in the public. It's a major public health concern. Um, another one is that a few of these um, a few of the people who are working on these vaccines are actually employed by large institutions, namely the ones who call themselves citizen scientists. So it's a question about whether or not groups that form of people who would otherwise have to be um, reporting to an IRB, um, there's a question of whether this group and groups that might form in the future that are like it are actually skirting traditional oversight bodies and traditional um, mechanisms for ethical oversight by working outside the system on a DIY vaccine and whether that creates some massive ethical issues with those groups specifically. Biohackers don't have an IRB. Um, and so, you know, there there is no <laughs> traditional oversight uh, mechanism for looking at DIY science. And that's something that I'm working on, that Todd is working on, that others are working on looking at. Um, but this DIY vaccine issue squarely falls into that box. And when establishment scientists leave their establishments where they do have oversight mechanisms and go uh, sort of rogue into <laughs> DIY biospace where they're, they're not... Um, where they don't need approval to self-experiment on each other and their families, then that creates a massive ethical um, conundrum for sure. And then lastly, of course, safety. <laughs> we don't know what DIY vaccines do to a person. There's, you know, we don't know if these are safe. We don't know, you know, like I've said, we don't know if there's efficacy, but we also don't know if they're safe. So it seems like, uh, you know, over 20 people have taken one of the vaccines with no major side effects or safety concerns. But who knows if the 21st or 27th or 47th person actually has a severe reaction. We have no idea how safe these vaccines are. Obviously, um, there's also the major concern, like with other biohacker projects, if you publish a recipe uh, online for a vaccine and your protocol is out there for the public for everyone to see and a novice gets a hold of it and ends up seriously injuring themselves, who is liable for that? It is, is it the biohacker? It's unclear. So, you know, there's definitely still the possibility of risk and injury from people who maybe don't have as much experience, but will attempt to create their own DIY vaccine because of the situation that we're in. And maybe they need to go back to work. Um, like, uh, like Natalie was saying, like people who have immunity passports um, maybe will be allowed to go back to work. If someone is desperate enough to create their own vaccine to produce antibodies, even if it doesn't make them, um, even if it doesn't make them truly immune, this is a major safety concern. Of course. And then if, and then I wanted to just sort of flag some what ifs. These are all very hypothetical, but, you know, I think we're working in a hypothetical space just largely during this pandemic. We don't really know what the virus does. We don't know how long it lasts. We haven't been able to predict a lot of what has happened in the past four months. So, of course, I think what ifs are, are a fun way to just sort of acknowledge that we don't know anything. Um, <laughs> so we were talking a little bit about a community response and how if, if one of these vaccines actually takes off um, and more and more people start to use it, um, but then it turns out to really like injure one or two people that, and that 
creates a, a media firestorm, which of course I think we can acknowledge that that's a possibility. Will this create an anti-vaxxer knee-jerk reaction against a vaccine that comes out that actually is tested, does go through a traditional pipeline? Will there be a reaction from anti-vaxxers and um, sort of the public against vaccines if one of these turns out to be um, unsafe? Um, and then we're also unsure what might happen if um, vaccines get mixed. I, you know, I'm, I think that probably Natalie can speak to this. She's She's got a background in biology, but as far as I know, you know, it, it could be dangerous to um, to mix vaccines and, and, you know, different experimentation with too much of um, various uh, pathways um, where these biohackers are creating a bunch of different kinds of vaccines and desperate people try more than one in an attempt to become immune it's unclear what that reaction might be. Um, for within the community, um, within the biohacker community, it's interesting. The response has been uh, sort of twofold as it has been with uh, um, previous sort of stunty projects within the biohacker community. One has been a severe backlash against public injections um, and disappointment that uh, biohackers might do that. The other one has been sort of like loudly cheering and begging for materials. So we can also sort of, we might be able to anticipate that from the three or four groups that I mentioned that I know exist like today, this weekend, by next weekend, that could have doubled. Um, so, you know, that's, that's an interesting community response that um, is definitely uh, potential. So here's a picture of um, some biohackers injecting themselves on YouTube yesterday. <laughs> um, and this is what Josiah had to say about that. I want to reiterate, we're not trying to create a treatment for COVID or sell anything we are trying to show people or um, what is possible with biomedical research in a DIY setting. So again, reiterating that this is a, an educational uh, endeavor. And then this is um, Alex Hoekstra, who's a co-founder of Radvac, <laughs> um, taking his DIY nasal vaccine. Um, and he said to me in an interview, um, and this goes to the ethical, another ethical question about um, risk and consent um, with DIY vaccines. And because they are, uh, they are looking for people to actually join them in this endeavor, and they have been reaching out to community labs all over the world. I know multiple labs have already gotten emails from them. Um, they're looking for engaged consent. They want people to actually work on this vaccine with them. They don't want passive participation in a vaccine trial. They want people to make the vaccine themselves and then try it out. Um, so that's basically all I have. <laughs> and I think that there's a lot of a lot of um, room for us to discuss. So I think, Todd, if you want to uh, just ask some questions and maybe tie this together um, and lead off a discussion, that would be awesome. But thanks, everyone, for listening. <clears throat> so I hope people can hear me better now that I'm behind my bulletproof glass. But um, if you have questions, again, use the raise hand function and we'll um, call on you. Um, while people are doing that, I want, I'd like both uh, Alex and Natalie to comment on this sort of general question that I've been thinking about, which is, you know, do ethics and sort of the rules get thrown out the window in the midst of a, of a pandemic? And then just as a, a side to that, you know, will, one, will society allow it or is society demanding actually that we throw out these rules in the midst of a pandemic? So if you guys could comment on that for a couple of minutes and then we'll go to the to other questions. 
You want to go first? Uh, Sure, I can go first. Um, I'm going to kind of be sneaky and link this into a question I also had for Alex. So I'll kind of... (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think um, I've been trying to give that... Todd posed that question to us sort of last week when we had our our preamble chat to this. And um, I've been giving that some thought. And I think... um, So I've been really... um, curious and kind of glued to the story of Radvac, right? Which, which Alex talked about. And these are sort of, these are these like really heavy hitters um, at, you know, MIT and Harvard, um, very credentialed scientists working within the institutions and then kind of in parallel working outside the institution. Um, and so I've kind of seen with like, when we're, when we're saying the rules are getting thrown out, um, they don't seem to get thrown out for everybody. Um, and I think that's what's concerning to me is the power structures that, you know, are very much um, already present. The, the rules getting thrown out seem to just, in my mind, benefit those that are already in these positions of immense power. Um, so when you think about, for example, who's not wearing um, masks in certain settings or who's, um, you know, who's decided they're going to just make their own vaccine because they're too impatient to allow for it to go through traditional regulatory processes. And, and so that's where the, like, the rules being thrown out really scare me. Um, and, and, I, I, and I really wanted to like uh, elevate this uh, issue of power um, because when someone from you know, these you know, lifelong researchers, hey, we are gonna name names, like George Church or you know, some of these big guys, um, and they are mainly men um, at these, some of the top institutes in the entire world are saying that this vaccine could work. I'm taking it myself. Um, my family members might be taking it. Um, I'm totally behind it. Like this is a very different scenario. And I actually find it quite, and I'd like to also just um, to, to mode it, to talk about what the motivations are. Um, from what I've read in a lot of the, the stories of their group, um, the motivations in my mind seem to come a lot of, from self-interest. Yeah. And I, and I, I mean, I don't disagree with that at all. I think, I think a lot of, I think a lot of biohacker projects are motivated by self-interest, but I think, you know, as a journalist, I also, you know, have to acknowledge what it is that they're saying. And I think that people are um, desperate and just because you work at a big institution or, um, you know, are affiliated with um, sort of a big research lab and, you know, have credentials doesn't mean that like the rest of us, you're not panicking. Yeah. So um, yeah. I, I think it's also, you know, we have to be very careful to put words in mouths, but yeah. I think you're not wrong. Yeah. How, and, and on this, you know, the question of, um, you know, throwing out ethics, I mean, this, this pandemic has created scenarios that are completely new to everyone. We're, we're operating without a net here. No one knows what's going on. And, and anyone who says that they know what's going on is a liar. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, throwing out uh, ethics uh, concerns is definitely um, something that we may have seen. I think that a lot of, there's a lot of concerns that some of the emergency use authorizations that have gone out um, from the FDA have maybe jumped the gun a little bit 
and, you know, are, are producing products that don't work and are creating false positives, are creating panic when that happens. Um, and certainly, yeah, that's, 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 those, these are ethical concerns. Um, when it comes to the DIY vaccines though, bizarrely, <laughs> there's been, um, maybe bizarrely, there's been a lot of, um, concern about ethics. And I think, you know, as questionable as the DIY vaccine projects seem, every group that I've spoken to, which is three out of the four that I mentioned, um, has has actually led with, no, we are concerned that society has thrown ethics out the window and we want to make sure that mm -hmm. we're creating a product that people can access mm -hmm. and we are focused on distributive justice. And so I think there's maybe some tension there where, you know, some of these projects, um, you know, definitely they, in their minds, they are towing a line of ethics and maybe even going further than is necessary. Um, the example that I enjoyed from Radback, which I which I think that raises a number of different before questions. You on, before you go on, can you just, um, Jantine makes a good point. I don't know if I was clear enough when I say that. Um, can you just be cl clear for the audience that uh, Radback's not happening at the institutions? Yes, 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 yes. So, yeah, I'm just looking at the chat now. Jantine, thanks for pointing that out. And like I say, um, you know, these these people have left their, not left, but have been working, no, working at their, their institutes. They're doing it on the side, right? They're doing it totally on the side. And as far as I know, none of the science or research or any of the experimentation has been done um, within an institutional setting. It's all done privately on the side. And although some of these folks are affiliated with large institutions, None of it has taken place, as far as I know, um, at actually Harvard or MIT or some or PGP, other the places that um, these researchers are affiliated with. I did enjoy, uh, and this is maybe an attempt at um, consent, is that before anyone in the public is able to even access the link to the white paper for the protocols for Radback, you have to go through a apple type like legalese and click uh um i accept i'm over 18 <laughs> i am a responsible human who can look at this white paper and they've created this consent form that i think you know has no as far as i know has never been on a biohacker project before so i think that that's a new level of an attempt at um ethical concern whether that is actually um works is a different question but i think it's interesting all right, so Ramon, uh, you should be able to unmute yourself and you can uh, go ahead and ask your question. Can you hear me? Hi, Ramon. Hi. Uh, well, thank you both. That's a really, really uh, nice conversation. Um, I want to ask two not so related questions, but um, one is uh, when I heard the, the, the immunity password, I just thought, come on, we're going to have this conversation. Uh, it, it seemed to me very a very absurd idea, um, but then I started just questioning. Well, do we do things like that already? Mm -hmm. and, and it turns out that yes. So, for example, here in our school districts, our uh, students are required now to have certain vaccines, uh, and even though many of those are provided by the states, some of those are not, and they're, they're quite expensive. 
uh, I think we just pay like $385 for a meningococcal uh, booster for my high schooler. And, and we can afford it, but many of our neighbors or many of our, uh, my son's uh, classmates don't have the income in their families to cover that. Um, and that's based on this idea that there should be some kind of uh, societal responsibility, right? So we don't want vectors moving around. We do the same for polio. We do the same for TB. So there are a lot of these efforts and, and you physically have to have a card or a certificate. Yeah. Um, uh, that's um, that, that that you comply or you fulfill that requirement. Um, another thing that I ask myself is uh, uh, so the first part is, is more uh, for, for Natalie, and the second part is perhaps more for Alex. Is to be honest with you, I don't even know if what we're injecting ourselves or my sons <laughs> works, right? So I get a paper or a certificate that says, oh yeah, yeah, we, we, we gave him the shot. <laughs> but who knows if that thing really uh, uh, increases that because there are many sources, right? And now that we're moving into this more open source kind of technology, could I just you know, get a letter from one of those guys in San Francisco, in, in, in Oakland, dude, can you just send me something and, and a certificate, right? So, so we enter this, really weird scenario in which we definitely require this kind of certificates as a society, at least in, 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 in many developed countries, but we have relied on the major pharmaceutical companies to provide that assurance, right? And the FDA. And the regulatory agents, yeah. And regulatory agents. Yeah. Right, and this, is, and this is the thing is, um, you know, when you get that certificate, that is also certifying that that um, injection, that vaccine has gone through a regulatory pathway and been approved and proven to be effective and safe. Mm -hmm. um, this, in the case of, you know, folks who are doing um, DIY bio in Oakland, um, you know, we don't know. It, it could be effective and safe. We don't know. It hasn't gone through um, a rigorous testing process. It hasn't gone through certification. Um, and it's unclear uh, whether or not it even can. So, and this is, um, you know, Todd and I and others have spoken about this um, elsewhere, but there's also a question of, you know, if it did work, even if it did, and you could get a certificate from them, what, could, could it even be produced from the masses at scale? Because does it even, um, if, if it was trying to go through an FDA regulatory pathway, would the FDA even accept it without an IND, without IRB approval, without all of the hoops that a very early stage research project has to go through to even get to the point where it could get into a clinical trial? This, these projects have not gone through that. So there's a question of whether or not it could even be accepted for use yeah. for you and your high schooler if it did prove to be effective. And I think a good point here that we, and this is something to be considering um, just generally um, in the vaccine development space with, with, within pharma, in the pharmaceutical industry is that scalability is incredibly important. So you could have a vaccine that works well um, when it's injected into your cohort of, of participants. However, it could be very um, unstable and that it would require really um, intense storage capabilities. It could be easily contaminated and you could have situations where when you're actually mass producing, um, it's not gonna be effective candidate. And so again, that's an interesting question to kind of think, I don't know if these, you know, these um, biohackers or citizen scientist groups are actually thinking about that sort of scalability issue, which um, 
which is very important if we're thinking about universal vaccines or ones that can be you know, equally distributed. Um, Ramon, just back to your first question though, um, I am not necessarily opposed to vaccine certificates, right? So if there was a vaccine for COVID-19 that went through rigorous you know, clinical trial and regulatory approval that we know is safe and effective, um, you know, that's not an issue. And we see that with schools, we see that when you travel to certain countries, you have to have vaccination records for yellow fever, for example. Um, when we're talking about immunity passwords, it's very much um, specific to this interim time with impatient um, governments and economies that want them to be started up again and want to try and rely on people's, as they're calling natural acquired immunity, um, to be certified. And that's where the whole thing, that's where a lot of this falls around, right? And that's concerning on so many levels. And Jason brought up a good point, um, which I also discussed but failed to mention is this incentives that it could create, right? So if people are literally depending on the certification to, to, to maintain their job, um, you can create these really gross incentives for people to seek out infection, um, creating not only an individual risk, but a huge public health uh, risk as well. And that falls into the DIY space too, where you have a people, you know, this incentives to take these unvalidated, unconfirmed, you know, vaccines to try and get immunity um, in a way that it could create huge public health concerns. And so, again, this is a really kind of unique very much during this what if time period um, that people are grappling. Um, and, and the last thing I wanna say about this is that we're in a public health pandemic, right? And public health requires um, a lens and ethic around social justice. It's a collective concern. You have to think about the collective. And so for these very self-interested projects where they're benefiting a small proportion of people, um, likely at the expense of the masses, this is exactly the opposite of the kind of things we should be doing during a public health uh, uh, crisis. And, it's, and you're noticing that too now when you, um, not to toot our horn, but like comparing Canada versus US and how so different our responses have been. And a lot of that is based on the fact that we have really strong social structures, right? Um, and, and, it's, and it's paying off. Um, so I think this is where some, both of these issues that falls apart for me, because there's a very self-interest motivation, um, whether it's immunity passport or DIY in some cases. Yeah, I want to. I I, de I definitely want to like push back because again, you can't cover them all with the same brush, and I think that that's really clear. Yeah, but there's some really good conversation going on in the comments, so I just wanted to flag um, some of the comments that folks are making. So, Jeantine, thank you so much for pointing out, and I think that Natalie, you were just saying this that this is an elitist sort of self-interested um, thing, and Jeantine backing up this lack of concern for the masses. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely a lot of that going on. And then Ed Yu, thanks so much for popping in here with the um, comments about transparency and sort of the traditional ethic um, and ethos of the DIY bio community, which agree, transparency has always been um, really top of the list. And I think Todd and I have both done projects, sorry, my dog is barking. Todd and I have both been involved with projects looking at the ways that DIY bio does prioritize transparency and very other related um, ethical principles. Um, but I do kind of want to push back on the idea that, um, that, uh, that there hasn't been transparency because again, all of the protocols have been published online. So the ones that are public, they are saying what they're doing. And in the case of Josiah, he's actually running a class. So, you know, even if this is not for a self-administered vaccine, if someone's just interested in immunology, 
and wants to take that class. That's it's a very transparent way of of you know, explaining how vaccines get made. And again, you know, we can talk about motivations, but we also need to be very clear about anyone who's watching these videos, especially like if you're a parent who has a high schooler who's interested in biology, it might be great to watch how vaccines get made in this, in this like very scary time. So these classes are very accessible and transparent. And, you know, if they're just for open science and education, which is what Josiah says it's for, then in that case, I think that it definitely hits the mark on transparency and open science. But like you say, so there's a big security risk. And yeah, we haven't talked about that yet. Um, I'm not a security expert. That's like all Todd. Todd can jump in and oh, talk. Oh, is Ed. I hope you guys can hear me better. Don't yell at me for taking my mask off. I'm actually behind a huge bulletproof glass. <laughs> oh I'm problem with the sound. But um, I want to thank Natalie and Alex. Um, we're, we're out of time. I hope this has been thought-provoking and people think about this and continue to chat amongst yourselves and others. Um, so thank you, Natalie and Alex. Um, we'll give you kind of some virtual. Thank you. Thank you. So thank everyone out there for, for joining us this week. Um, please take a look at the schedule. We have some exciting um, speakers this fall, we think. Uh, so please come back. Um, and if the colloquium students could just hang on for a couple of minutes, Dawn and I have a few things we need to talk to you about for the rest of the semester. So thanks again, everybody. Thank you all. Thanks, Todd, Thank for having us. Thanks, GES. And thanks, Natalie, for being awesome. Yeah, thanks, Alex. <laughs> Glad to know. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>